Okay, I think we'll get started. Um, so, hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event on how government can support low-carbon technologies. My name's Tom Sass, I'm an Associate Director at the IFG and I lead uh, its work on Net Zero. Uh, I'd like to start just by thanking the Forum at Imperial College London for supporting this event. So we've worked very closely with academics from their Transition to Zero Pollution Initiative. Uh, they do lots of really valuable work in this area, which Mary will be uh, talking about. So there's an awful lot going on at the moment. Uh, the challenge of reaching net zero is, of course, right up there. It remains urgent. We have not only the latest science telling us that, but also a record-breaking summer of temperatures in the UK and wildfires to keep that front of our minds. Um, and while the UK has been a leader on this agenda, uh, the most difficult parts of this transition are certainly still to come. And the challenge is to do it in a way that is efficient and cost-effective and delivers benefits right across the country. Keir Starmer laid down the gauntlet last week in Liverpool, setting out some bold ideas uh, for making the UK a green energy superpower, language people may think sounded not totally dissimilar from uh, one of our recent former Prime Ministers. Uh, and the new government has sent uh, some signals on this agenda, so relaxing onshore wind planning, for example, in the recent mini-budget, uh, announcing a review of net zero to be led by uh, Chris Skidmore, uh, but also emphasising energy security and boosting domestic supply of some fossil fuel uh, energies. Uh, so Jacob Rees-Mogg will be required to set out an updated net zero strategy, I think early next year, um, and sort of set out the details on how emissions targets will be met. Uh, so, what's the proper role for government in supporting low-carbon technology to make this transition happen? What are the key trade-offs that ministers and officials need to think about in this, making those decisions? Where does the UK have advantage on low-carbon tech? Where doesn't it? Um, and how will Conservatives uh, ensure that happens? I'm uh, delighted to be joined by a great <coughs> panel to discuss all of that. So Dean Russell is uh, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and a former physicist, as we've just been uh, learning. Um, Bim Afalami, who will be joining us shortly, uh, is of course uh, an MP and, Parliament, uh, and Chair of the Renewable and Sustainable Energy uh, All-Party Group. Dara Vias is Director of Advocacy and Programmes at Energy UK, uh, and she previously worked at Citizens Advice and in local government. And Mary Ryan is Vice Provost for Research and Enterprise. Um, so this event is live and on the record. There'll be a recording of it uh, afterwards. Uh, we will be tweeting the event from our IFG events uh, account uh, using, the, using the hashtag IFGCon22. Uh, and the team will be taking some photos during the event. Uh, and we have about an hour. I'm going to start with some questions to my panel, but there'll be lots of time for you to ask questions too. Um, Dean, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we've heard a bit from, from the new government, but tell us about its, what its approach will be to low-carbon technology and net zero. Well, I can give you my sort of general view on this. I, I should, should know I'm a week into the role, so I, I'm still in, uh, it's still in listening mode, and that's why I think conference and having it at this time is so important. So I'm keen to hear from all of you and, and from the panellists. I mean, just a bit of background. You mentioned I, I, I'm a physicist. A lot of the work I did actually was in material science, uh, looking at material gallium nitride about 20 years ago, and that was about creating uh, blue, uh, green wavelength LEDs. I won't go into that in any detail. But, but the reason why I say is I remember in my thesis, I'm writing about the fact that actually the use of 
LEDs and, and lasers, but LEDs uh, as an alternative to light bulbs would, would could potentially change the world. Whether it be uh, the reduce uh, reducing the use of energy in traffic lights through to uh, flat screen TVs and, and and the like. And I think what that's always brought to to mind for me is actually the role of innovation and the opportunity for the UK to be a powerhouse when it comes to innovation. And one of the challenges for innovation is that you never quite know what that next idea is going to be and um, how you can best make it successful. And I think <coughs> the role for government, oh, uh, very kindly, I've got a nice spider here. I'm not scared of them, but uh, an extra audience member. I don't know if they're registered. Um, uh, but the, uh, um, the, uh, the reason why I say is that actually, for me, one of the roles of innovation and the opportunities that it's definitely come from, the reason why I say if I get a bite and uh, see the hero powers later, you'll see me uh, crawling on the ceiling. Uh, <laughs> Right here. Um, uh, the, the, the reason why I say though is that in, in all seriousness, is that for me it's about innovation and I think the opportunity for business, is particularly, particularly in the small business arena, is that actually for government we need to be supporting small business, we need to be enabling you uh, and organisations to, to be the best that you can be and ultimately to encourage growth. And uh, whether that be growth from a, uh, a small business of two, three people up to uh, 250 or 500 now as, as uh, was announced. Uh, that we're going to be changing the uh, what the what's classed as an SME, I think is so important, and then growing that around the world, and that ties into many areas, whether it be the ownership of the intellectual property for that, who who actually owns that, you know, how do we take advantage of that? If you look at things like gra uh, graphene, I was at an excellent uh, round table yesterday, as uh, we were chatting about previously, you know that was successfully made here, but actually the IP and the way it's used now is around the world. I don't want to steal your line yeah, for, uh, for later. Um, so I think there's an element around ownership and supporting that, but also around deregulation. And I think for a lot of organisations, what they find is the red tape gets in the way of growth. It gets in the way of their opportunity to take their ideas to the world. You know, I've, I've said before in Parliament, in, in a different guise, that you know we used to be a, a, a a country where we had shops and small businesses in every corner of the street. I want us to have businesses that are available in every corner of the world, you know, and I think there's an opportunity for that. Uh, but that really means that government should be there to support where we can, look at that innovation, connect business, but also deregulate so we can get out of the way as well. And I think business should not be hindered by government, it should be supported by it, and we shouldn't be there uh, to stop that from happening. So, as I say, I'm in listening mode, I'm really keen to hear from all of you, but I'm really excited because I think there's a huge opportunity for this country. We've got brilliant people, brilliant universities, uh, brilliant um, organisations like the Institute for Government as well. Uh, let's all work together and find a way to, to become a powerhouse around the world. Thank you, Dean. And I mean, understand completely that you're always into the job and in listening mode, which, which is brilliant. Um, just keen to understand a bit more about um, what you and sort of colleagues in Bayes will be listening out for in particular. So we know that there's this review going on. We saw the approach of the previous Johnson government to net zero, you know, published a, a net zero strategy and very much made green industry a sort of big focus of its agenda. Should we expect that sort of thing to continue or would you say that this government is looking quite afresh at, at net zero and, and low carbon? Well, I think we're still keen to achieve those targets. It's not so much if or, or, um, or when even, it's about how. 
And I think that's about looking at what the opportunities are. And, and innovation comes at the heart of that. I mean, I don't think we've really talked about uh, changing the principles of why we want to get there and how we and that, that we need to. You know, there's no doubt about the need to make sure that we're, uh, we're looking after the planet better. That helps everyone. Uh, but also, I think there's opportunities within that. And I think, in my mind, it <coughs> isn't just about the negative, which, of course, is the challenges that we have with climate change. But it's also about how do we invest in skills? How do we make sure we've got the, the best scientists in the world, the, the best opportunities, the best jobs, and the best industries to be able to take that around the world? I, I'm very much of the mindset that if we're talking about to the rest of the world about what we need to be delivering on, actually, why not be the, the, the country that's helping to sell those, those opportunities, sell those, uh, those industries, sell those ideas? Uh, so for me, I see it as a great opportunity, uh, not net zero, zero, something that we need to be really, you know, uh, worried about doing. Actually, it should be something where we're, we're chasing it and looking at how we can inspire the rest of the world and help them deliver on it as well. Brilliant. Um, Dara, you've got a, a minister here who's in listening mode. Um, so what does, what does the energy industry want to see from government on, on low-carbon technology? I, mean, I think, you know, as with any panel event ever, um, Look, you know, offshore wind, clean energy, mining energy, and fossil fuels right now. If you'd ask anybody 10, 15 years ago whether that would be the case, there was scepticism. You know, and I think that it's really important to do the R&D and to be thinking and planning because there is so much potential for clean power um, for a number of different reasons. You know, I think we need rapid ramp-up of investment in our sort of sovereign, low-carbon, clean energy, not least because, you know, current state of high energy prices um, really demonstrates the need to kind of go further faster in investing in low carbon clean energy sources that are domestic and that are sovereign and so you know reducing our reliance on importing expensive gas. So I think the case is there for more and um, quicker investment in nuclear, CCUS, offshore wind. The industry has plans to spend over hundred billion pounds over the course of the next decade. That's tens of thousands of jobs and skills and right across the country, you know, this isn't a London-centric or southeast-focused agenda, it's right across the country, which is really, really exciting, I think, and speaks to this government's agenda when it comes to either levelling up or just investment and growth and economic growth. So those are all really good, positive things. And there are things that do need changing as well, you know, talk a little bit about institutional governments. I think institutional governments in this space really does need reconsidering. Um, there is a need for good regulation, not least because of the health and safety and consumer protection. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, certain frameworks and some sometimes it's really difficult to get things done as quickly as you want them to. And if there's ever been a need for urgency, it's now. Um, so I do think there's an opportunity to think about institutional <coughs> government governance regulation. And when it comes to sort of market support, the reality is, is these are not sort of quick decisions and they all get sorted tomorrow. There are certainly technologies that can deploy quicker and faster, but there also is this need for this long-term investment horizon and to be considering what that means. And that's why I think regulatory certainty is important. Ultimately, this is a global crisis and therefore every country is considering how to attract investment into these sorts of innovative new technologies. There's no reason Britain shouldn't be the leader in this space. And we have to just make sure that we've got the right regulatory 
policy environment that welcomes that investment and really is thinking about that long-term investment and what do we want for the future of this country? Brilliant, thank you. Um, if we dive just a bit more specifically into, a, in, into one area, um, so offshore wind is something that you know, everyone agrees is you know, something the UK has, has excelled at, it's something where we've got some quite ambitious um, targets. Certainly Johnson's government uh, talked about 40 gigawatts by 2030, it talked about speeding up planning decisions, it had a bunch of things in the energy security strategy for sort of trying to move that. I know at the moment we're not quite hitting those deployment rates if we were sort of to be, to be on that trajectory. So if we take that example specifically, do you think there are more things that we need to be doing if that sort of level of ambition is to be realistic? Yeah, and I do think that, you know, I know the government's reconsidering the energy security bill that was introduced into the Lords, um, and I understand why that is focused on growth. I think there are certain things within the bill that really must be progressed in order to unlock the ambition and potential of the industry. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you mentioned offshore wind, the reality is, is any, any look at the future scenarios for energy in this country um, clearly states a real need for a mix energy sources you know we need to be doing things in tandem we need to be progressing with nuclear as well as the cc rest and x ideas as well as offshore wind and also you know considering also things like onshore wind it's easy there's a huge public support i think there's a poll a couple of months ago 70 percent of people you know are really open to the idea of having more locally based energy one thing i would say is that there is a balance between rushing and doing things well. Mm. And the reality is, is sometimes I think if we try and progress too quickly, a good example is decoupling gas and electricity prices, mm. the unintended consequences, and ultimately those unintended consequences generally mean high prices for mm. people, mm. and we should try and avoid that. Okay, that's a really good point, because uh, you mentioned uh, sort of regulation and the need for regulatory and institutional reform. I think we have a fairly nerdy audience uh, here in Birmingham, <laughs> so I wanted to mention REMA and sort of review of electricity market market arrangements, which is obviously pretty critical yeah. in this space. We've heard some discussion about that being a sort of long-term approach to reform, but also some more kind of details coming out, and there's a consultation. So in your view, is that sort of moving in the right direction? Uh, yes, I'm really glad that the government's pursuing the kind of conversations about reimagining working policy with not just industry, but with consumer groups and with um, the regulator on it. I think that there is certainly more to be done to unlock the potential of power to generation side. Ultimately, you know, we have an energy industry and an energy system and regulatory process that needs to be modernised, whether we're talking about power generation or we're talking about retail market reform. If this energy crisis has shown us anything, it's that we need reform and we need to be thinking about how we make it a reality for people. appreciate you might want to move on, but one thing I'll say that we haven't talked about is people and homes. And ultimately, it is homes that need to change. It's buildings, homes, we need to... Do, do a number of things, improve energy efficiency, decarbonise homes, and make everything a bit smarter and use energy flexibly, use it when it's most plentiful and cheap on the system. So that's a lot, it's a huge agenda. Mm, brilliant, thank you. Um, Mary, what role can science and innovation play in supporting low-carbon technology? Well, do you recognise I'm coming from a slightly biased <laughs> standpoint here, Tom? Um, so, I mean, science and innovation, we, we've talked a lot about innovation, and we talking quite a lot about what's, what does the future look like, right? I mean, that's what we're, we're essentially saying, how do we design, well, I hope we're saying, how do we design a better future through technology, but not just through technology. And I think, just to pick up on Dara's point, that 
a lot of the conversation around this is very supply side focused, actually, and there's a huge amount to be done on the demand side that also involves science and technology in terms of efficiency savings, but also behavioral science and understanding how consumers behave and how citizens behave um, and how you get them to adopt different practices, right? So thinking about you know, person and people-centered design of, of tools and systems is, is a really, I think, important part of that research space and coupling the social science with the hard science, if I'm allowed to use that terminology. Um, I think it's really critical that we don't lose, um, we don't be so directive, and, and um, I think Dean already mentioned this, that discovery science, essentially, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think you said, discovery science is really critical because you don't know what you're going to discover. The graphene wasn't discovered in some kind of grand challenge project to find the next electronic material, right? It was, you know, physicists playing in a lab, right? And, and found something and, and knew that there was something interesting, right? So I think that we, don't, we, we can't totally direct science, so keeping space for discovery science that might give some disruption and understanding that. Um, I think one of the key things for that, the science, some, some of the key questions around science innovation are not just the, the we've been talking about energy security. I think it's probably, I, I would rather talk about energy resilience, which kind of encompasses both security of supply, <coughs> but then um, how the system works and how the grid behaves and, and how the mix of renewables is able to deliver to, to that grid. And I think right now there are some really big technical challenges in enabling that in terms of you know, scaling up storage. What does that look like? What's the right technology to deliver that? actual stability of the grid itself and, and operations of the grid without a gas baseline, how that is managed. And those are, those are really hard technical <coughs> questions that innovation hopefully will solve. But I think more, then I think more broader than that, and, and Tom mentioned our zero pollution initiative early on, and that, that's, a, that's an initiative we started at Imperial to, to try and think about de-siloing some of these questions. So not just what, what are the key questions in wind, or what are the questions in solar, or what are the behavior questions, or how does this impact biodiversity, actually the whole system needs to be considered, or you end up with unintended consequences. And we're already seeing some of that from an environmental perspective in things like electrification of vehicles and the challenge of the cobalt mining and lithium mining and how that's impacting biodiversity loss. And, and I think we might come on to supply chain issues and, and the environmental impacts of that. So I think enabling research that has that systems level approach, and you, ne you need therefore to fund big teams that have got all the different perspectives so you can think about these unintended cultures that might happen and avoid them. So what, what are the scenarios that you were building in that space? Brilliant, thank you. Uh, I, I would just add, sorry, and, and yeah. this wasn't what you asked me, but I did want to just emphasise, I agree, I think there's a difference between deregulation and better regulation. Mm -hmm. And I think we need better regulation. And better regulations give certainty, I think, and that's certainty for investment. So just there is a, there is a balance, I think. Mary, I wanted to ask you about this idea of which technologies the UK has an advantage. Mm -hmm. um, so we hear politicians actually on, on, on both sides, I think now, talking about net zero being this fantastic opportunity and the UK, mm -hmm. UK business is selling to the world. Mm -hmm. you know, we can invest in these green industries and actually that could be a very good export for us. Of course, if you're sitting there in government, you need to have some sense <laughs> of where we have advantages in science, in mm -hmm. our scientists, in our institutions, in innovation, in our, in our potential, mm -hmm. and perhaps where we don't, you mm -hmm. know, where other countries might be in a better place. I mean, how, what, how does that conversation happen between the kind of science and innovation community and, and government to do this really well? Well, I think 
on the, on the science base, I think we are extraordinarily strong in, in several of the really key areas, right? I mean, and I mean globally leading in, in, in wind turbines, in the, in the deployment of not just, I think, the individual turbines and their efficiencies, but in how you develop wind farms, right, to make the whole system of the farm more efficient, because that's not a trivial question when you think about aerodynamics and flow. Um, we've got a really key, and uh, I'm slightly biased, and it's nice to have another material scientist on the panel, because I'm a material scientist. The materials community in the UK is extraordinarily strong. Um, and so things that are critical, like hydrogen and catalysis, the UK, I think, has a really globally leading presence in that space, in electrochemistry materials. Um, and if you look, I mean, if you historically, if you look back, Series Power, which was an Imperial College spin out, it's, it's now the biggest clean tech power company in the UK, it's valued at 1.2 billion. That was a fundamental electrochemical materials challenge on electrolysis and on how electrodes behave. Um, and we're still really strong across that piece. Um, there is a huge amount of really good work in solar. I think deployment of solar in the UK has kind of hindered that science being translated. I <coughs> don't see that changing, but that work is, is very, very strong. And thinking about where solar might couple to some of these other challenges, there's opportunity space there. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to bring, mm. um, bring you guys in. Um, Dara, I might start this one with you and then Dean, you can, you can come in if you like. Um, in terms of talking about the role of government here in effectively supporting these <coughs> industries and technologies, we did see some interesting new ideas come out last week in, in Liverpool from, from the Labour Party. In particular, we saw an idea for a, a sort of GB energy company, which we, we're waiting still for the kind of details on that, but one of the ideas is that it could invest in those more kind of risky um, areas uh, where other companies might be less willing to do so. I mean, what did you and the industry make of some of those, those new ideas coming out? I mean, you know, it's, it's never been a more interesting, exciting, challenging time to work on energy issues, um, and it's great to see the focus there. Um, from both the current government and the Labour Party. I think that when it comes to the specifics around the potential for, for a GB energy company, my understanding is it's about investing in uh, power generation and investing in the same way that lots of other countries do. Um, I think as far as our members are concerned, it's, the, it's about how something like that is done, what it means and what the impact is on the rest of the market, what the impact is on the rest of the in the space. I think it's an exciting and big enough agenda for as many players as they want, but the reality is it just has to be kind of fairly done. And yeah. 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 Um, Dean, I don't know if you wanted to say any more on that, but I suppose um, one characterisation you could make of the difference between perhaps the Labour vision of net zero as it's sort of becoming increasingly clear and perhaps the type of vision that your government might set is that kind of to what extent there is a really role for an active interventionist government, or to what extent you're trying to achieve that using regulation and stepping back and letting the market um, sort of work? Well, I'm a free market uh, you know, uh, conservative. I mean, I think, you know, many people in this room, I, I imagine, are from different businesses and innovative organisations that want to be able to get going and move quickly and be able to be nimble. And I think the, the opportunity there is to have those brilliant minds working and, and have government support them. Uh, where they need support and get out of the way when we need to get out of the way. Not that doesn't mean getting rid of regulation that uh, you know, that, that uh, is needed, but it's about making sure that there's a seam, seamless and uh, streamlined approach. And I think 
that's where, because I want to be able to go and speak to businesses and speak to individuals, speak to researchers and scientists and see where their ideas can come to life and make sure that they can happen. No one has a monopoly on great ideas. You know, there will be, I have, I'm a, an optimist and I think, you know, in the past 20 years there'll probably have been uh, you know, someone born, hopefully in the UK, who's going to have an incredible idea that's going to change the world around energy. You know, that's the way every century's gone. There's been someone, someone inspirational. What we have to do is for them to be supported to do that, uh, to enable them to do it, to have the right education and support to do that, and make sure that it's possible. And I think there'll be some amazing brains and kids out there today who I want to have long careers uh, so that they can change the world. And I think there's an opportunity to do that, and that they may well be someone in this room. Who knows? Can I just yeah. on that as well? So I think just on the government investment potentially in this space, I think I think there are there are two kind of separate distinct challenges. One is investment that's required for this rapid deployment at scale, right? And and where does that funding come from is one aspect. And then there's the other piece of what, what we would call innovation in the deep tech space. So so where you need innovation, it's typically a long time horizon to get to market. It's quite challenging once you've got you know the the IP and a spin out to support that with current state funding because of state aid rules. Um, and quite a lot of great ideas fall at that very early stage, right? So it's really interesting to think what could the government do to create a different framework that supports that deep tech early stage development, right? So you can accelerate the transition, right? And accelerate deployment of those technologies. And I think that they're, they're different questions, but they're both critical, right? And they both have probably, I think, a role for the state to play. That's a really interesting point, Mary. Just on that. Mm -hmm. What might that framework look like? Because I mean, we've, we've seen a bit of it from mm. the previous government. Mm. You saw there was a sort of section in Net Zero mm. Strategy mm. talking about innovation. They had a, I think I'm right in saying, a Net Zero Innovation Board mm -hmm. chaired by the chief scientist, which was trying to look at some of those really high potential areas. But as you say, there's a lot of complex issues mm. to work through there, not least state aid. I mean, I think state aid is the biggest barrier, right? So working out what is the instrument mm. that enables investment that doesn't contravene those rules and it's interesting because it, I'm, I'm going to do the horrible thing of mentioning Horizon Europe but SMEs in the Horizon program could access 100% of their costs right because it was a Horizon European program it didn't count as individual state aid and so if we end up with plan B actually where does that innovation money sit probably it will be the Innovate UK and now it will be subject to those rules right so SMEs will be disadvantaged in what they can access in that piece so is there a mechanism that's an arm's length investment body or you know some framework that actually enables at that very early stage because it's you know you've got two or three people with a brilliant idea and a prototype right how do you take that to the next step I think is really critical I don't know the answer I don't know the regulatory legal answer I'm afraid Tom but I think it's for the UK and it's one of the reasons you see quite a lot of UK startups moving right so look there's, there's a disproportionate number of UK startups in this space that list on the NASDAQ, for example, instead of the London Stock Exchange, because the, the framework and the investment is, is better not to the UK. For, um, there are some things that have moved, like the, the movement on the pension investment, right, mm -hmm. is, a, is a big step, I think, in terms of unlocking some investment. Well, there's, there's space to go. That's a really interesting point, Mary, and I expect mm -hmm. some people might want to come in on that. So let's take a round of questions. Oh. Um, we'll go here, there, and then oh. there at the back. Um, if you can say who you are, there's a mic coming just there. If you say who you are and where you're from, if you're happy to. Um, good morning. I'm, uh, my name is Mike Maudsley. Um, I'm the CEO of a company called Infinium. Infinium is uh, one of the UK's largest uh, energy and waste businesses. 
Um, in the UK, we actually produce, not just in Finian, about 1.5 gigawatts of electricity, mm -hmm. low carbon energy, sustainable energy, base load, but controllable. Mm -hmm. um, we don't seem to get a mention anywhere. Now, I've got a vision. First of all, the great idea is it's already built. It's on our doorstep. Um, Infinium, 2.5 billion pounds worth of assets. We've got another billion in construction. And I want to use the electricity to, to create electrolytic hydrogen as well. And actually, it could flex in the grid backwards and forwards. I used to run Dinorwig and Festinio, so I know how that works. And I used to run Drax. But we don't get a mention. It's a reason why. OK. Thank you. Good morning, I'm Rosa Wilkinson from the High Value Manufacturing Catapult. I have to say that I'm really excited, like you, about the prospects for energy in the UK. And I would very much agree with you, Mary, that we have some of the most amazing scientists that are really leading research in this area. But I want to see the value of that science land here in the UK rather than elsewhere. And to do that, we need to make sure that we've got superb supply chains capable of delivering the things that the scientists are working on. And at a time when many companies are struggling to get the talents that they need into their workforce, there are real challenges in doing that. I'd be interested to hear how you think we can crack that conundrum. Thank you. One more at the back. Um, good morning. I'm Helen Milner. I'm the Group Chief Exec at Good Things Foundation. We're a national and international digital inclusion charity. Um, so this is all very exciting, um, but I'm specifically interested in the fact that almost half of all e-waste in this country goes into landfill, um, specifically for technology <coughs> that can be reused, devices, laptops. We now have set up, with seed funding from Virgin Media, a national data device bank. So we can get all of those old technology into the hands of digital excluded people. Um, I know some people did this during the pandemic. We did it, but with new technology, which breaks my heart, I want to take that almost half into landfill into the hands of people. And specifically, Dean, do you think the government could pledge to give all of your old technology um, for good to us? We can, we can process all of that and we can get that technology. So let's have a zero tech waste from government, lead the way, but also corporates in the room would love your tech too. Great, thank you. Dean, uh, I'll start with you. Uh, so question on energy from waste, question on, on supply chains and, and talent, and then another question on e-waste. Fantastic. Well, they all combine, don't they, really? And, and they were very fortunate to chat to Mike uh, uh, before we began. And, and, um, and in a way, actually interesting, the, the two points, that the, the first and second and uh, third question, actually do tie together, because actually the use of waste is such an important part of this, and it's part of that mix. But also, as, if you don't mind me uh, yeah. referencing our conversation, we were talking about the fact that even in that old landfill, there's lots of old tech, you know, and there'll be chips and, and minerals and things that are, that are probably available that we could use, but are just stuck in landfill. So th I think there's lots of opportunities for that. I think the main thing, though, is looking at how we can make sure that that... Um, going to the second point is about the supply chain. How do we actually tie all this together? How do we make sure we go from the skills through to the businesses, connect those organisations, connect them with government and make sure it's all tied together? And I think that's that's a big question, actually. I think it's one of the things that uh, I, I imagine that Chris Skidmore, who's, who's looking at the net zero strategy, is going to need to look at. Uh, how do we make sure it's seamless between all, that, all of those aspects? In, in terms of Mike's question about why aren't we talking about waste? Well, we are now, uh, and I, I, I'll, I'll make sure I continue to. I think the, um, the you know, in reality, I think this, from 
from my experience doing the material science bit, um, I remember some of my colleagues at the time looking at the efficiencies of things like solar panels, the efficiencies of the technology we use, and actually that goes right the way through. The efficiency of the ability to get you know, solar energy and use a maximum amount through, through those um, uh, devices <coughs> so that they can be used for energy, but also making sure that we're recycling. You know, we talk a lot about recycling plastic, but we don't talk quite so much about recycling technology. And I think that is a big conversation. I'd love to chat to you. I can't make a pledge to you about, uh, about government, but it's a, it's a great question. I'd love to chat further. I think very finally, I'd just like to say that I think, for me, it's about the mix. It's about looking at all the options. We've seen with the, um, I know the conversation earlier was about whether it's, uh, you call it uh, security or energy security or energy resilience, but what we've seen is if you have all your eggs in one basket, you, you're in a, in a difficult place when it comes to energy. And I think the broader the mix we can have, the more resilient we can be, um, the more opportunity there is then for, for small and new innovations to come up and to, to be part of the mix. And who knows, in, in 50 years' time, they might be the main source of energy. So we've got to get that balance right. And I think when it comes to recycling tech, you know, we, we are facing a challenge globally, uh, security-wise, around minerals and about how they're used within technologies and within all, within all the devices. Everyone has one of these now. Uh, but these are full of minerals, full of technology, full of things that actually, if you just throw it away, it's going to be absolutely wasteful. One thing that I was aware of, and I, I will stop, is that I think Apple did quite a, um, uh, a good innovation that wasn't really talked about loads a few years ago, which is that they do recycle, don't they? They reuse a lot of the technology in old phones, so they have a recycling process. I think that's a, a great way looking forward for the industry. Yeah, I don't feel like there's um, quite a lot to unpack in those questions. <laughs> I mean, Mike, to your point, um, when you were describing your business, I was thinking, does that mean they're on a heat network? And I had all these questions in my head. And the reality is, I think, what that does is it plays back the idea that we do need a really strong mix of different technologies and, and different uh, generation types in this country. Um, and that if you're not an energy UK member, maybe you can think about it. Maybe we should. Introduce here Energy UK are, and that that um, that, was, that was remiss of me because well we represent around uh, generators is probably around eighty percent of this country's power generation. We represent retail suppliers who cover about ninety five percent of uh, households in the country, in the country, and also we have a number of members who are in that systems heat. Um, EV charging, uh, that kind of new energy services space, which speaks to a lot of your points, Rosa, which are, you know, which is around actually, it's a global supply chain, and there is a tightness in that right now for a number of reasons, and not least the war in Ukraine. Um, and what it does is it once again brings us back to the point of why the UK and why, why not anywhere else? We're competing globally for not only <coughs> stuff, the things we need by the supply chain, but also the people we need to develop. You know, we're, we're the country who's you know developing the largest offshore wind farm. That's something to be celebrated, um, and there's so much more potential there. So I completely agree with you, and I think that a lot of um, what we've seen since 2016 in this space, you know, brilliant pledges and ambition and targets in terms of reaching net zero. What we really need is a roadmap. What we really need is like a technology roadmap. Where are we going to? How are we doing it? When are we doing it? And then we need to crack on with it. Thank you, Mary. 
Yeah, so, so Mike, we are talking about it, at Imperial at least. Um, we, so last year we did a, a, a large piece and a, and, a, and, a, and a white paper briefing on what does a zero waste society look like, right? So and actually, I think one of the challenges is actually to reframe the conversation away from waste to resource, right? All waste is actually resource. And once you start to see the, the kind of different dynamic in that, you start to think how it can be used and where is the value extracted. Um, Electricity to hydrogen, yes, fully agree with you. And I think there are some really key um, challenges in doing that that, apart from anything else, link really clearly to the supply chain and the critical issues of materials in the supply chain. Um, the criticality of materials is a huge issue. That I don't know if people saw the British Geological Survey review um, a few months ago now, probably. So that lists 18 critical materials that are... Um, we are really at risk from an economic and a supply chain issue. Um, so I think there, um, the hydrogen economy depends on quite a lot of those materials, as does the wind turbine economy with, with rare earth magnets. So I think that we haven't fully, I think, got to grips with the risk of that supply chain and how we get some robustness to that. And part of that is, I guess, securing those partnerships and those networks. Part of that is looking at alternative technologies that aren't so resource critical and what might different chemistries look like in those two spaces. Um, the talent supply chain, I agree, it's a huge problem. Uh, we are seeing it in universities. I'm sure industry is seeing it. Um, I think there are some moves with you know, global talent visas, um, but I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think we really need to open up to, to movement of talent um, and, and working out how we best do that. Um, and I think that the question about e-waste is a really important one, but I think that links to the very first question, right? How do we, how do we access one, cre create a society where we, have, we don't have all this access poverty, right, to various different technologies. And, and the, you know, the same question applies to mobility and electric vehicles, right? How do you remove access poverty across the piece? Um, to reuse where possible, to repurpose and reuse, um, and upgrading, actually, of, of that technology so it can be reused, so you're not just you know, cascading down, right, which, which will then give you a stratification in society of technology, which is not where you want to be. But I think also, how do you recover those materials? And Apple have come to some of it. You're right, they're doing some great work. We are talking about mining, you know, landfill, right, to recover some of these materials that are part of this critical supply. So all these three questions are actually really intimately linked, interestingly. Um, but, but also, there is some great research going on on how you'd recycle some of these things. And there's, and there's two things I think to think about. One is, what are the best routes to recover materials? And so there's some brilliant work being funded by the Faraday Institution, right, on how you take a lithium-ion battery and take the piece back. But the second piece is how do you design devices better so they're deconstructible, right? Right now, we, we optimize device design for ease of manufacture, ease of use, um, best efficiency, not for end-of-life usage, right? That's not part of the question when you're designing a device. So how do you bring that question forward, actually, to, to try and incorporate some of those ideas um, into, into the, at the design stage? Can I just add a quick Please. point on that? It's on the supply chain side of things. So it's a different industry, so forgive me for mentioning it, but in my, in my constituency, I've got um, ASOS, the, the, the clothing company, and they did some amazing work um, with, I think it's St. Martin's, uh, uh, to look at the, the sourcing, of going right, cotton's picked, all the way through the life cycle to where it's turned into clothes. And then, how do you then not just recycle the clothes themselves, but actually get to the point where you can make it back into fibres to create brand new clothes? And they've done some really interesting work in that whole 
process because actually it's about the ethics of making sure that you know the, the cotton's being picked by people being paid a decent wage, that the clothes are being made in factories where that it's being you know, ethically made and people are being looked after, but also how the, the process, the manufacturing process is done, how it's uh, green for the environment and of course the supply chain side of it as well. And the reason why I say is that I think there probably is an argument to say actually how do we look at that within the within the, uh, the technology mm -hmm. space, because actually the work they've done there is fascinating, and I know it's still early days for them, but the idea of being able to not just recycle your clothes and say, give some old clothes to someone else, but actually recycle it properly and say, let's make it back into fibres, and then create some brand new clothes that can be used and used and used and used, is, is an incredible way, and I'm sure that must be something that you can do within technology, within phones, and within uh, the laptops that we all have. And interesting, if you want to get to net zero, so something like, well, estimates vary, but between 5 and 10%, about 7% of global electricity is used in extraction technologies, right? So, actually, once you've extracted the material, it's crazy not to work out how you just keep using it, right? Because you're saving a huge amount of electricity in that process. Thank you for that. I mean, Mike, did you want to come back just because you've taken us into a really interesting example there of, you know, the sort of demand, the sort of critical materials, the kind of the whole resilience <coughs> piece, I think there's been some very interesting reflections from the panel. So I just wondered if that sort of tallied with why you don't think this is being talked about enough. Well, I, I agree with him, it's not being talked about enough. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> like to we talk about resource management yeah. rather than waste. Mm. You know, even last night I was talking to somebody and they said, I, sort of, I moved from the energy sector, which I've been in for 30 years, mm. and I'm now in the waste. Oh, Mike. Mm. You know, mm. and, and it, it's, mm. it's, well, it's a fantastic sector. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they're doing a great deal to try and, you know, recycle, reuse. Mm. And then the energy from waste, you know, business takes, um, well, there's about 50 million tonnes of non-recyclable waste, and that's the good thing, that the, the wood have gone to landfill mm. now goes to energy from waste uh, mm. facilities. That is still getting put in, like, there's still 6 million tonnes being put into landfill. Mm. There's a million tonnes being exported, so Norway are taking our waste that they're going to burn this winter mm. for their own electricity. Mm -hmm. ah. Mm. You know, um, but moving forward, it's more. I, I just want to use the word innovation to to mm. say, well, there's something right there right now. Fifty plants in the UK that can do something. But they're all small individually. That's the mm. problem. If you think they're always too small, it's just mm. a little plant. But if it, you know, one of my plants is going to be in the middle of Birmingham. Another plant in the middle of um, uh, um, Leeds, and they can create heat networks. Yeah. And, and so that's what we're talking about as well. So lots of things going on, but I just want I want the podium. I think it deserves it. Yeah. Our assets are fantastic. So the other one is anybody who wants to come and see any of our assets in uh, either Ferrybridge, Leeds, Birmingham, Kent, uh, North Wales, you're welcome. Fantastic. There you go, you've had the platform. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I maybe just expand on that, Matt? Because I think it's really interesting that when you start to think about wasted resource, you, we think we, we tend to have a very narrow view of what that is, right? And it's stuff you can burn, right? But actually, it's some stuff you can reuse. But waste, waste heat, right? Waste light, waste sound, right? How do you innovate to capture all of that? Because all of that is energy, right? All of that is energy. And we should be innovating around the broader piece. Okay, let's take another round of questions. There's one at the front, there's the man at the back, and there's one on the right there. Morning. Uh, Chris Kelsall, CEO of Tokamak Energy. We're developing fusion technology for delivery into the grids in the mid to late 2030s. We're based in Oxfordshire. Um, there was a, a fair amount of discussion in terms of how do we support these early stage businesses. Mm. Obviously, once you're getting up to 
high TRLs and high technology readiness and commercialize, full commercialization, you can go into NASDAQ, but there is that gap. Mm -hmm. There's that middle, middle area in terms of funding. Now the US government, the Department of Energy, just last week when I was in Pittsburgh, has announced a public-private milestone-based program mm -hmm. for fusion, which is exactly the model yep. they used for the SpaceX program that delivered the uh, device, the vehicle, to go into orbit. And it's also the same model they used to develop the NASA program. Mm -hmm. So there is a prime example of a structure to develop these early technologies, milestone-based, government-supported. My question is, what are your views in terms of looking at that structure and perhaps adapting it for application in the UK? Great. Thank you, Chris. Uh, gentleman at the back there. Simon Godwin, I work in the, the automotive industry. Uh, this follows on a little bit from part of the, dis the discussion. Are we thinking of innovation, um, the, the clues in the name, uh, as doing new things with new technologies, but it's also about doing new things with existing technologies and existing assets. Now, in, in my sector, there's a huge amount of expertise and assets in the UK in the internal combustion engine, which is now seen as a technology that's transitioning out. Uh, but you can do new things with that technology. You can run it with hydrogen instead of with gasoline or, uh, or diesel. Um, but it's not recognized as zero. There's a, you know, the mantra zero means zero. Uh, hydrogen engines are about as close as you can get to zero without actually being, being zero. Uh, but there's so much potential in the UK for, for this technology to use the assets that, that we have. So you know, can we get past that, let's say, dogmatic mantra of zero means zero um, and support that kind of technology? And it's not just our company, it's many, many companies in the UK that have that expertise in this. Here. I'm going to take one more question now. Thanks. Um, Angus Hill from WA Communications. Um, so, totally agree with everything that the panel said about how we should be you know, clearly encouraging a wider range of tech and innovation to give us choices um, and get the points around having a wide mix and um, you know, resilience being critical. Um, but I think there will be some cases where government or regulators may need to choose between technologies. Um, you know, for example, which we prioritise in certain use cases. Um, how do you think this should happen, um, particularly when there might be concern over picking winners, particularly when the technology is in the early stage and it's still evolving? Um, and just to give a specific example, you know, clearly in terms of home heating, um, the choice between hydrogen and heat pumps, you know, both really exciting technologies which people are very positive about, um, but you know, there doesn't be a need for government or regulators to give direction. Um, how should that happen? Thanks, Angus. That's a great question. So, Mary, I'll start with um, you on those, if I could. Um, so, we had a, a, a question for Chris about mm. those mid-stage mm. businesses. Question from Simon about sort of hydrogen businesses and those working with existing technologies and whether mm. zero has to be zero. Uh, and then that last question on on how to choose and that really difficult point about picking winners. Uh, you yeah, don't have to reveal yeah. if you're a, a heat <laughs> which, pump. Which I would be. Oh, no, I would be voting. Yeah, I, I, I might get to trouble for voting. Um, Chris, I think. Actually, that, those models are really important. And I think that the key word that you used was milestone driven, right? Because I think at that early investment stage, how do you, one of the challenges that we've been thinking a lot about is how do you de-risk technologies, right? To enable um, those value inflections so investors can actually have a bit more confidence, not total, but a bit more confidence. And, and actually, milestones are the way to do that, but what those milestones are is not trivial to know, right? So I think that fr that framework, I think, works really well, and I think it's absolutely what we need for building confidence and de-risking. And if there is a public-private way, I'm going to look at Dean for that. <laughs> I think that, that, yes, I would be very supportive of that, and it has worked really well 
in the States. I mean, I think there is, a, I mean, potential um, thinking about how we learn from the DOE and DARPA. We're, mm. we're taking some, we're taking some of that through. Is potentially that with in our area? Yeah. Potential, well, we don't quite know how that's going to play out yet, yeah. but um, I think it's, it's starting to look like that. But, but that's only 800 million, right? That's, I mean, I'm only 800 million, but, but in the scheme mm. of the investment we're talking about, that's a small piece, so how do you scale mm. up to that scale? So, so yes, zero means zero. I think zero does mean zero, Simon. Um, but we talk about net zero, right? And uh, CCS, of course, is not yet fully 100% efficient, right? So thinking about how we improve CCS and how we actually end up with, can we do some direct air capture? We're going to need that. What's the investment that, there? I think we need to, if we're really going to adopt hydrogen, I really think we need to accelerate from blue to green, right? So using electrolysis and scaling electrolysis, which is also then not going to be trivial because we can't readily get to terawatt levels without replacing iridium, right? So thinking about how we do that is complex. But I think more broadly with, with hydrogen, I think there is, and we talked about this earlier, Simon, I think there's a huge behavioral and societal piece that needs to be done in terms of communicating what that means and what using hydrogen means and the safety issues and the storage issues around hydrogen, I think have been misrepresented or misunderstood generally. So I think, I, I actually think there's, there's a technology piece to drive fully green hydrogen adoption. And I think there's a big societal social science piece to think about how you get that to be adopted. Misunderstood in what sense? Sorry. In, in the levels of safety, right? Because mm. there's, a, there's a sense that hydrogen is more dangerous than gasoline, mm. right? And people are perfectly happy to drive around on tanks of gasoline, but are some, for some reason nervous about tanks of hydrogen when mm. actually if you think about the thermodynamics of it, that's a very irrational point, but most mm. people don't mm. think in thermodynamics, right? <laughs> I, rea I realise I'm in a very small group there. But, um, but I also think there's... Um, in, when we were, so if we'd been here a few years ago talking about electric vehicles, we would have probably spent a lot of time talking about range anxiety, mm. right, from a consumer perspective. And there's been there's been technological there's been technology development, but there's also been rollout of charging, right? And so it's you don't hear the range anxiety conversation so much. It's a little bit there, but it's not, you do hear it. But it's not it's not stopping there being like an eighteen month wait list to get an electric vehicle, right? So you, it's it's not framing the conversation in the way that it was, I think, three years ago. I think it's I, I agree, it's not completely gone. But with hydrogen, you've also got that infrastructure piece, right? How do you if you've got a hydrogen car, where's the next filling station? Right, that the rollout of that I think is quite a long way behind yeah. where we have been with with gasoline. Um, have waste in, in the waste pump, <laughs> That's where it will be, right? Because that's where it generated. Yeah, I know. I agree. Um, I'm I'm going to leave the hydrogen versus heat pumps, but I think a framework for decision making needs to be clear and transparent because there are lots of vested interests, right? And so, how do you know what's right for the consumer? Who does that? Which I, which I think we need this independent regulation and framework setting to do that. Yeah, one of the things we argued for in our mm -hmm. research on that point specifically was government sort of setting out a clear, even if it's a sort of five-year mm -hmm. process, for mm -hmm. how it would make that decision and how it would inform mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. the use of pilots. Yes. The use mm -hmm. of so, so actually thinking about a structured decision mm -hmm. and then giving businesses a, a yeah, way yeah. of engaging with that. Yeah. Um, Dara. Mm -hmm. um, I think just to kind of sign Um, 
set zero agenda or if it's a kind of youth in household. We already do have some proven technology that we should be rolling out, but mm -hmm. then to the conversation earlier about heat networks, projections after twenty percent of households to be on a heat network by mm -hmm. twenty thirty. And that needs kind of actual regulation to make sure we've got proper consumer protection in place. Mm -hmm. For me with hydrogen in home, still a lot of unanswered questions, which is why it's really good that there are pilots and mm -hmm. Ultimately, and just sort of drawing on that my kind of consumer experience and consumer policy, the reality is is that you know all of this is going to be really disruptive. We're going to be asking people to do an awful lot of things differently within quite a short time frame, yeah. and I think that that needs real kind of holistic consideration by governments um, for the long term. You know, what is that conversation? What is that contract we're making with people? What are the changes we're asking people to make to their homes? To what end, in what time scale, how intrusive and disruptive is it, and how are we helping them? Can I just follow up on that one piece? I think we've we've just come through a pandemic, right? We've been in crisis management for two years, and we learned an awful lot about behaviour and response and not picking a winner, right? If you talk to Kate Bingham, she's like, I was very clear, I didn't know what the winner was. I backed five vaccines, six yeah. vaccines, ten vaccines, however many they backed, right? Actually, because I understood, and the time frame was, it was compressed, that, that actually one of those will will move, but actually you ended up needing a mix to deliver the, the volume, right? So I think the, the analogy is from that. And also you drove massive behavioural change very quickly, right? And I think actually the climate crisis is a bigger crisis. <laughs> actually it's more existential. And actually we should be almost thinking in crisis management, right? Actually, and how you drive these things at pace and what can we learn from that? So should we have a net zero star and give them lots of money to make some big bets? Um, maybe I wouldn't use the same language, but yes, but yes, we need we need um, we need some we need a process to do some big betting. Absolutely. I'm always interested in how people take the vaccine and how far they take the next vaccine. Yeah. Um. Sure, I mean, it, 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 great questions again. I mean, I, actually, on the vaccine piece, because I was on the health and social care select committee mm. for two years, so throughout the whole uh, period of COVID, and I remember interviewing Kate um, uh, just pre the vaccine, really. Mm. Landing. Mm -hmm. And what was marked in my mind at that time was how everyone said it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And actually, she was putting those bets out there. And she had a lot of political <coughs> um, hate, actually, mm -hmm. from people saying, you know, it's not going to happen, she's not doing the right thing. You know, there's an awful lot of quite personal attacks mm -hmm. on her. And then we got the vaccine, yeah. and then it works. And it's often the way, isn't it? Everyone says it can't be done until it's done, and then it's, yeah. of course, it was going to be done. Yeah. And I, I imagine that's the same with fusion, you know, mm -hmm. very much so. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think I'm probably one of the few um, MPs that studied uh, as a module within my, my physics mm. course, nuclear energy. Mm. No, I didn't do particularly well in that thing. But I remember it well. Yes. Uh, but, but the reason why I say is that, you know, is it, 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 you know with fusion in particular, I. I, I Quite like reading my new scientist, and yeah. um, and uh, you know you follow it, and and every so often there's a breakthrough that it might be small, but it's a breakthrough, mm -hmm. and it gets bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And I think for me that's really the, the the points I wanted to make that you know we need to support those early stages. I'd love to chat to you more about the, the work that you're doing, and of course I can't comment on whether there's going to be a government uh, announcement on on any of these things because this runs it's not even in my brief, so I, I'd be wrong to even uh, pretend to. But but I do think there's a, there's a role to make sure, as I said, with deregulation, working with business, looking at those innovations, 
Um, and I know there's a point about whether we're making a bet on something, you know, whether it's a choice, but again, it goes back to having that mix. Mm -hmm. The vaccine was a good example of that. But also, you know, I, I'm old enough um, to remember Betamax, VHS, yeah, yeah. which ones you choose. Uh, I, I can tell the age of the people in the room by the ones who laugh. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, but the point is, you know, it was it was a decision, but it was a consumer decision. And actually, Betamax was always seen as being, you know, video players and all those things. But, you know, actually, Betamax was wholeheartedly said to be the better of the, the two technologies, mm. but VHS was the one that went out. And I think, actually, we, we have to look at what, what those decisions mm -hmm. are, but I think the more mix you've got, you're not then putting your, all your decision on mm. one on a binary choice of mm. one or the other. Actually, perhaps you can do a bit of both. But I think the, the, the choice is going to be partly consumer. Mm. And I think going back to, to some of the excellent points earlier, you know, this is also about behaviour change. It's about taking, bringing people with you. You know, government can make a decision on something. It doesn't mean that people are going to necessarily do it. And I think when you look at the start of, um, uh, of, of COVID, you know, with lockdown, the government, when we announced that there was going to be lockdown, we didn't know whether it was going to work. You know, I'm not going to go into the whole COVID mm -hmm. uh, situation, but, you know, because the, the awful times that we had. But actually, you know, no one knew whether that night that the Prime Minister announced we're going to go into lockdown, whether people the next day would stay at home, or whether they'd go out in the streets, whether there'd be people doing rioting, all of those things you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to be able to lay the groundwork, mm -hmm. to understand and explain to people why this stuff's important, get them on board, get them to, to believe in what we're doing. And I think electric cars is a good example of that. Many years ago, people didn't really weren't really that interested in electric cars. You know, it was very much a science fiction thing. But actually, as it, it's become quite a cool thing now to have an electric car. And actually, you've got these massive backlogs of people wanting to uh, buy them because it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a status symbol mm -hmm. for some. Yeah. You know, we want to get past that. And of course, that's why the government set targets for, uh, for stopping the sale of, of petrol cars in 2030. But, mm. but, you know, actually that's been consumer-driven as much as it is government-driven. I think if we can get to that place with a lot of these new mm. technologies, uh, uh, we can be in a really good place with it. But it's got to be about bringing people along with us. If they feel like something's being forced upon them, it's a totally different game from actually people being brought into it and agreeing to it. And I think you know the role of government in part is that communications piece, uh, but also it's upon all of us within the industry and within homes and within schools mm. to have those conversations about how do we really want to make this work and, how, and, and talk about the benefits of it not just the, you know, the carrot and the stick, isn't it? It's not just about people uh, using the stick, it's actually about the carrot saying, actually, this is going to be brilliant, it's going to be about jobs, it's going to be about the economy, it's going to be about innovation, it's going to be about cool things, as well as, you know, how we're going to be uh, tackling some of the biggest challenges we've ever faced. Thanks, Dean. I'm just going to take one final question very quickly here at the front of the room who had his hand up before. Um, <coughs> if you can make it quite brief and, and direct it to any of the panel that you want to, and then we'll... That's put the pressure on me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, is that working? Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, yeah good morning. Uh, David Landon, I'm CEO of Multix Energy. So Multix Energy, a nuclear molten salt reactor company. Mm. Uh, quite an innovative concept of how you develop that. I, I was very interested in the point about how do we keep innovation in the UK because we are actually a case in point where we, we have a technology for nuclear waste conversion which offers conversion and energy at a price similar to gas or other fossil fuels which has ended up in Canada sadly. There is a second technology though which is very important to um, energy balancing something that Mary mentioned mm -hmm. so we're talking about a technology that can energy balance 
do exactly what gas does at the moment. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in what you consider to be the importance of energy balancing going forward, particularly as we rely more and more on intermittents and, and how we really keep that technology in the UK, which is very much a homegrown technology. Okay, thank you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think w one of the uh, things I'm really excited about is that Chris Skidmore is doing the net zero um, look again. And, and because I know Chris well, he's um, absolutely passionate about this and that, you know, he wants to find that, you know, find a strategy that works. And, and I'm looking forward to him producing that report. I think the, the reality is it's about how do we make use of that learning, but also work with people like yourselves. You know, I'm a great believer that collaboration uh, can't be one way with government, you know, it's got to be two ways. So I'd love to, to speak to you more, but I think your point about nuclear is an, a really key one. I mean, 10, 20 years ago, you know, people were very anti the idea of uh, nuclear within this country, and actually that we've sadly come to learn the lesson of that, because if we'd had nuclear power stations over the past 10, 20 years, we were very in a very different position than we are now with, with uh, reliance on gas and so on. So I think there's a, there's a great opportunity there to look at what those next phases are. But as you mentioned, I mean, waste has come up a few times now, hasn't it? And um, I think, you know, we've, the irony is we've got stuff that we could use to make energy. How do we best do that and how do we uh, invest in it? So I, I, I'd love to chat more and, and, and learn more about what you're doing. But I really uh, would say that I'm looking forward to what Chris Skidmore's looking at in terms of how we achieve the, the end goal of net zero uh, and what we will, I don't want to put too much pressure on his shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can load the pressure on his shoulders. He's going to work saying. it out. But, but, yeah. but I, think this, you know, I think that's going to be a really important uh, part of this discussion. Yeah. Uh, for fear of sounding like a broken record, it's about having a uh, the reality is, actually, the way you phrase it is very nice. You know, the intermittency argument. I mean, no, nobody thinks the wind always blows or the sun always shines. That's why we need nuclear. It's why we need to be considering baseload and balancing. And that's a sensible, pragmatic thing. Yeah, that's good. Um, and not just having the targets, but actually having some of the, the things underneath yeah. it to reach those. Mary, finish it off. Yeah, just quickly, I think I think it's really interesting. I'm not surprised that the first bit went to Canada in that space, knowing that, knowing that space and knowing the technology and the, the approach they have to nuclear there. I think, I think you're talking about a different technology than conventional nuclear or even nuclear fusion. You're talking about extracting extra power from waste, nuclear waste, both, right, as both well, actually. both pieces. Um, so I think that we need to be a bit more visionary in how we think about nuclear, right, as well, and, and more again, more accepting of it. There's a huge social piece there. But absolutely, how we get to the right mix of baseload or storage, right, and how you, and, and thinking about, there's a whole time frame of, you know, storage release supply to the grid, the grid kinetics, right, are not, one, we don't really fully understand how we can deliver that. So that's a really important piece. We're talking, what, 50 gigawatts of flexible storage, right, or delivery. So I think at, as a piece for that, I think there, there should be a role for a mix across the, across the piece that can deliver at pace. And um, you know, I guess we're talking about power versus energy, right, and how we, how, we, how we manage those two pieces into the grid is a key question. So yeah, I agree. Heated agreement again, Dara. <laughs> Absolutely, we need. So I think, but I also think we need a mix of storage. You don't just need a mix of supply and generation. We need a mix of storage. Brilliant. Well, heated agreement, but um, that's all we've got time not for. Wasted heat, uh, not wasted heat. <laughs> not wasted heat. Yeah. And some, yeah. some really brilliant questions and, and an awful lot of expertise in the room. So thank you for yeah. that. Um, we've got lots more events on here at Conservative Party Conference. You can <laughs> read flyers covering levelling up, housing, more on net zero, and many other subjects. Um, you can see all of those in the flyer or on our website. 
Um, just remains for me to say thank you again to thank Imperial uh, for supporting this. Thank you all of you for coming, and thanks very much to our panel.